Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Kevin Rothrock, and I'll be your host today. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Stephen White, the James Bryce Professor of Politics at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. His new book is called Understanding Russian Politics, published last year by Cambridge University Press. Stephen White's book begins simply enough. Russia is no longer the Soviet Union, he writes. Well, this is a well-known fact, details of Russia's post-communist transition, the emergence of a party system and presidential government, as well as the dismantling of the planned economy and construction of modern political communication, have rarely been as consciously and seamlessly fit into the setting of Russia's immediate present. Stephen White's ambitious text tracks the most significant developments in Russia's post-Soviet formation, and more importantly, plugs those events back into the framework of today equipping readers with the context required for a deeper reading of contemporary Russian politics. Understanding Russian politics tackles all the biggest components of Russian statecraft and social transformation over the past 25 years. In my interview with Professor White, we discussed topics as current as President Medvedev's 2012 legal initiative to liberalize political party registration in Russia, as well as the role the the previous winner's street demonstrations played in prompting such reforms offered by the Kremlin. In this context, White addressed the constitutional legacy of Yeltsin's super-presidential state and explained why Putin's economic policies have deviated from the extreme market liberalism of Russia in the early 1990s. Our conversation finished on the subject of Russian foreign policy and domestic interest groups, highlighting the roles that competing schools of thought play in policymaking today. For more discussion on the contours of Russian politics and how best to understand them, here's my interview with Professor Stephen White about his new book, Understanding Russian Politics. We're joined today by Professor Stephen White, the James Bryce Professor of Politics at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Professor White has been publishing research about the Soviet Union and now Russia for nearly 40 years, and 40, not four, (laughs) and today he has joined us to discuss his 2011 book, Understanding Russian Politics, from Cambridge University Press. Professor White, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And before we dive into your book, I wonder if you wouldn't tell our listeners a bit about your background, where you were born and raised, how you came to study Russia professionally, and perhaps most importantly, why? Yes. Um, Well, I uh, don't have any family connections of any kind, and uh, probably my family, my father was a journalist, newspaper man, then later in television. Probably they were always some are on the left, but that might have meant really just in British terms the Labour Party or something of that sort. Um, so I imagine that I got some interest in, so to speak, alternatives when I was growing up. Um, and then um, I, I went to as a student, sort of 1968, and that uh, movement that uh, affected every country, United States, obviously as much as anywhere else, which meant that there was a time of searching for alternatives. And at that point, um, I think there were very few who thought that the USSR was a sort of ready-made alternative, but at least it was instructive. It was obviously hard to remember that now, but mm-hmm. until not all that long ago, it was sort of the major alternative, so to speak, the, the major different way of doing things in terms of its managing its economy and, uh, and all the rest of it. And so many, many people, um, for all sorts of reasons, wanted to uh, look at it more closely, uh, spend a period of time studying there. Um, I was born in Dublin, my, um, uh, but we also lived in London, and I did my degree at Trinity College Dublin that probably many uh, listeners will, will know of, um, famous for Joyce and uh, Swift and uh, people of that sort um, who, who attended there. But I did history and politics. I didn't start Russian studies really till my graduate years when I came to Glasgow. We had very famous professor then called Alec Nove. Um, Alec Nove was a leading, maybe the world's leading specialist on the Soviet economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Gorbachev came to Britain one time he and met Nove, he said, you're the man who's supposed to know more about the, the Russian economy than I do. <laughs> Nove said, you know, I, I do my best. Mm-hmm. Um, he was connected, of course, by, uh, by family. His father had been a prominent 
Menshevik, so moderate socialist in the, the early Soviet period and had worked indeed in government and been elected to the Soviet in, in St. Petersburg or Leningrad as it had become. So there's a strong uh, connection there. Um, but I, I then began my studies here late 1960s, spent a year in, um, uh, at Moscow State University, which was a sort of exchange agreement that then obtained, I'm afraid, not any longer. Many, many other people. I remember a very large group of Americans, some of whom I'm still in contact with, who came at the same time, and we all took our little rooms in, in Moscow University with a shared bathroom and, uh, and eating in, in the campus, and mostly had a very good time. In particular, I was friends with a number of people, one of them, unfortunately now dead, uh, Carl Jacobson, who was prominent later in his own way in the field, but his father was a Norwegian ambassador in Moscow at that time, and so that meant we had exceptional opportunities. We got an invitation to Peking um, to visit, stay at the Norwegian embassy. It was the time when ping-pong diplomacy was beginning. In fact, it was announced when we were there. Um, so we went there on the Trans-Siberian Railway and then went around Central Asia more or less as soon as I came back. So it was an exceptional opportunity um, to make, uh, really to get a very full sense of what life was like. Obviously, we made many personal friendships with Russians, though I didn't end up getting married to a Russian, which I set out as an objective, more or less, when I went there. I made very good arrangements of a different time here in Scotland. Um, but a very, very full sense. Of course, this included the language, but, but much, much more. The whole society, you know, we went to the theatre a lot and so on. Really had a good time. Mm-hmm. And so then the book... The book, yes. So the first thing I wanted yeah. to ask you about the book is, uh, how do you intend for it to be read? Is it a textbook? Does it reveal your opinions about Russian politics that you've collected over the last decades? Um, mm-hmm. who, who is your imagined audience? I think my imagined audience uh, is broader than um, a college audience. Um, I do intend it to be read. I hope it is read. I, indeed, I know it is being read reasonably widely in classes um, internationally, not just in Britain or the US, but, uh, but elsewhere, because the English language, of course, is really the international language of scholarship uh, these days. Um, and certainly markets on that basis, and, you know, I hope not too expensive um, in terms <laughs> of the number of pages and so on. Um, but uh, there is a very substantial um, section of notes in it. It might be anything like a third of the text. It's given even smaller print, so it doesn't completely overwhelm uh, the text. But I've tried, and you know, may not completely succeed, but I certainly have tried, on the one hand, to uh, give a text that would be uh, clear, I mean, in the sense of, of written material, that would be clear, that wouldn't underestimate or overestimate anybody's intelligence, that wouldn't shirk uh, difficulties, questions of interpretation, um, things of that sort, um, but at the same time wouldn't be a rehash of other people's opinions, that would rely very much directly on, above all, on their original Russian sources of various kinds, not only, of course, printed sources like the press, uh, made, spent very, very many hours in the periodicals room of the historical library in, in Russia where they have all these things on the open shelves for the last couple of years readily available. So it's a very pleasant place to work in. But also uh, some surveys that uh, with others I've been conducting for more than a decade now, um, series of interviews, there's a certain use of uh, archives uh, which are now possible. So I hope in this way that um, it will be accessible to probably first of all a college type readership, but that it will be of value to specialists, to people of, of my um, sort of uh, specialization career path. Um, and I, I think it's not fanciful to think that there are you know, readers out there, um, maybe even in schools, I think are not overambitious, um, but among people working in government or working in uh, the newspapers or things like that, who, who want you know, a, an intelligent, up-to-date discussion of, e.g., you know, is the Russian economy in a mess or uh, has, is Putin genuinely popular or he's just been fortunate in the world price of oil or things of that sort? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do give plenty of uh, further reading, if you like, pointers to people so that they can follow things, these things up uh, in, in other sources as well, including some of the sets of data you can get in a few minutes on your computer at home. Mm-hmm. Right, right. 
Okay. Um, now, so, to move into some of the, the individual sections of the book, I wanted to discuss first uh, voters, parties, and parliament. Um, how, how has the role of parties changed in Russia over the last 25 years? And do you think the recent political party legislation signed by Medvedev will open a new chapter, or is it more a continuation of old trends? Yep. Um, of course, inevitably, one has to say we'll, we'll see. Um, it's certainly true that the law has changed dramatically. The law has changed in terms of the uh, numerical requirements for re- the registration of a political party. Uh, it used to be 50, it went up to 50, from 10 to 50,000, then 40,000, now only 500. And it was thought that that was ridiculously few. The, one of the communist deputies said in the parliament, look, that would be an undergraduate, an underground carriage, a subway carriage at PCAR. You know, at rush hour, um, so it isn't awfully many, but um, it did stay at uh, 500, and so that should, in principle, mean indeed that it's already meant that large numbers of relatively small specialist parties have developed. However, um, there is a body called the Federal Registration Service, which keeps an eye all of, on all of these things. You have to be registered with the authorities to be a political party. You can appeal in certain circumstances, but it's unlikely you would be successful against the authorities if they had a reason for suppressing your requirement, your, your, your wish to, to register. And until recently, they have, for example, directly told people like uh, Gorbachev, who went to the, um, the uh, Kremlin authorities, Mr. Sorkov in, in particular, and said that he was thinking of forming a social democratic party, and they simply said to him, uh, don't waste your time, you know, we won't register it. And I mean, we, we need to travel a very long way, I think, from a situation in which the authorities, you know, even though the law has changed, um, a situation in which the authorities tell you whether they will or will not register your party to one in which ultimately the courts in an independent way would, would rule on, on that sort of thing. Um, so I think um, uh, we, we, you know, we'll have to see. I would be skeptical, I must say, um, that this really has transformed the situation. And... Um, you know, all of this is against a background in which I think very many people, uh, I suppose I shared some of that view myself, simply thought that you know, now that Russians could form parties from, from 1990 onwards, really, but particularly since the change of regime, that, uh, that they would, and uh, things, of course, would take a while to settle down, but they surely would. Um, if you look at uh, mass opinion, you can see that um, there is strong support for a party of the left of some kind, not necessarily the Communist Party, it could be a social democratic party, and there is some support, strong support, I suppose, for a nationalist party of some sort, which might not be good news for national minorities, including Jewish minorities and other minorities, and mightn't be good news for the outside world, but it certainly would have strong support from the church and a number of other important institutions within Russia itself, um, plus perhaps others. Um, there's always been a constituency for, as it were, a liberal, westernizing, uh, pro-EU membership sort of party, possibly even pro-NATO membership party. Mm-hmm. But uh, the pattern of time, um, of course, together with changes in the law that have made it more difficult for them to survive, um, with the raising of the electoral threshold, for example, in particular, all of that, I think, has undermined these groups, marginalized them. And, of course, once they're not in the Duma, then they cease to be of interest to people who might fund them because they can't hope to get any purchase on uh, government legislation by a party that's not represented in the Duma. <laughs> Quite important that at least Yablaka, the, the main liberal westernizing party, did get above 3% of the elections last December. And accordingly, they're not, of course, represented in the Duma, but they will get state funding, and that's not unimportant. Mm-hmm. And the state funding um, since, I think, 2005 has, has made a difference. It's helped the biggest parties most, but it has helped the other parties as well. Um, so the position has ended up in which, um, partly, I think, because of accidents or circumstances and personalities, people who didn't get on, but also because of the changes in, in the law, it's led to the so-called parliamentary parties at the moment just four enjoying enormous advantages. For example, they can nominate a president without any further formalities. They can stand at further elections without any further formalities. The independent candidate we saw uh, last month in the presidential election um, had to get four million, sorry, two million votes. Um, and although he's, as we know, Prochor of exceptionally wealthy and so forth, nonetheless, um, it's not just any two million votes. They've got to be in 
handwriting that the authorities would recognize, right. drawn from all over the country, not from a few places um, in a relatively short period of time. So they have made it exceptionally difficult. You know, the institutional barriers remain low. So um, things are certainly will change, but I think we need to see more fundamental changes than that. We really would need to see non Russia-wide parties, for example, legalized, which we, we haven't seen uh, yet. Uh, we would need, I think, to see the single-member districts returned uh, in, in fully um, in a way that uh, they, we haven't had them since, uh, since 2000, uh, the law change in 2005. Things, things of that sort. Then I think we really would be in that place. But I suppose above all, um, really this is a big conclusion, I think, that so long as the Duma doesn't really matter, um, then what are the incentives for a party to seek to get elected? What difference does it make if they, if they don't form the government, if they, they can't put forward a, a program that will then be backed by an electorate and then they put into practice? It's all a bit marginal. Um, you, perhaps you'll recall the, um, the phrase used by uh, the in, interior minister for some time, Mr. Grislov, and then speaker of the Duma, that the Duma is not a place for discussion. Right. And Ray has been very much seen, um, mm-hmm. particularly when United Russia has dominated it, really as the, eh, really almost as the Supreme Soviet was seen in the Soviet period, I have to say, as a sort of mechanism that needed to process the, uh, the, the wishes of the, the ruling group, whether the ruling group be the Communist Party of the Soviet Union or the, um, the, the, the Putin leadership. And until the Duma acquires some serious authority to check and limit government, um, uh, you know, so, such that we've got a, a government not of a, a single hierarchy, but of uh, checks and balances, then, uh, then I think we might begin to see change. And I think we're some distance away from that, although it's beginning to be talked about, I think terribly encouraging and important development. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know if you, if you heard that. I think Putin, Putin added on to Grislov's you know, infamous comment. He said that the, the Duma is a place to think. Duma at the Miesta Duma. So, so the, yeah. they're, they're still turning out these, these great uh, one-liners um, that sort of, you know. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and Medvedev, <laughs> Medvedev, I think it is uh, certainly one of the, has said since the December elections that now it will be right. a place for, I think, uh, for uh, discussion and for reflection, something like that. Well, so they're, they're well aware that uh, this wasn't uh, didn't go down awfully well. Right, right. Well, and there's also discussion now that that even Yudina Garcia might might splinter into different factions. Although this is this is sort of rumor still, but there there's talk of it at least yeah. that that there might be even even more happening in the Duma. Um, this gets into my next question. Actually, you you identify in the book something called the problem of the Russian presidency. Now, could you explain for listeners what exactly is that, and perhaps you could summarize some of the competing con- constitutional perspectives on the issue. Very much so, yes. Um, This is the problem, I think, that arises when the president is so exceptionally powerful, when the president is, uh, of course, the whole chapter of the Constitution. um, He doesn't, um, perhaps we'll know, he doesn't actually directly appoint the the prime minister, but he is the only one who can nominate the prime minister. And given the balance of advantage in the Duma since the... uh, 1999, I suppose, elections, really. Um, there's been no effective, there's been no possibility that the uh, president would have his choice uh, rejected in the parliament as, uh, as had taken place before. So almost all the cards are in his hands, uh, either the monopoly of the right to nominate uh, or then the appointment of government itself, the dismissal of government, um, entire government at any time for any reason which has happened, um, appointments of the armed forces, the in the economy of things of that sort. So exceptionally powerful, and it wasn't always so powerful. Um, the, uh, when the Constitution was originally devised, when the USSR brought it in a Constitution, they did then have a, a vice president, and uh, of course then uh, Yeltsin was elected as Russian president with uh, a vice president, Mr. Rutskoy, but then they, uh, they uh, went different ways in, uh, in October 1993 when there was the constitutional crisis, and since that time, they've swept away pretty well all the limits on the presidential power. I mean, that's what you or I would do, I imagine, if we had the liberty to pretty well a clean sheet of paper and we can put down there anything we wanted. In fact, we have in uh, some excellent volumes that, uh, that have been uh, produced uh, 
relating to these discussions. We see quite a lot of it actually in Yeltsin's own handwriting. He could pretty well, I think it's, it's described as a, as a country made by the tailor for the tailor, so to speak, mm-hmm. tailor-made in the fullest possible sense. So there's no vice president. Um, the possibility of impeachment is still there, but it's exceptionally unlikely that it will be uh, very, very difficult to conceive that it could ever be employed. Um, the uh, the uh, Limitation on terms is there, certainly, um, a maximum of two consecutive terms, um, but the, there's no upper age limit, as there had been before, and so forth. So, very, very strong constitution. Yeltsin, in fact, even Putin recently has referred to really the Russian tradition as some sort of explanation for having, over so many years, this all-powerful central figure, whether it be a czar or a general secretary or a president. So, I mean, the tradition, if you like, um, is certainly, certainly contributes to that, as well as tradition, I think, uh, you know, in fairness, the, uh, the introduction of such an exceptionally powerful president by international standards, not just by the standards of the past, uh, was held to be important in an unstable Russia, a country that, when it was introduced, appeared to be at some risk even of breaking up, um, uh, where it's an economy, of course, in the 1990s that was con- contracting rapidly. So it was felt that rather than a figure who would need to bargain with the parliament, what might be an oppositional parliament, while the country was going uh, to the dogs, as we would say colloquially, was collapsing, you needed to have a figure who was free to act. Um, but I think what we found is that, uh, in practice, is that the exceptionally powerful position that the president has enjoyed has meant that other political institutions have been emptied of, of significance, have been, have been so weak that um, uh, the, the establishment that the, the Kremlin has said really thinks, thinks too much. Um, its decisions haven't adequately been scrutinized, for example. Um, this isn't to say that, some, that it shouldn't have the prerogative, let's say, but um, it's not, I would have thought, in the long term, even in the Kremlin's own interest, that it should have such a monopoly of policy uh, initiation. The proportion of legislation, for example, introduced by the presidency is exceptionally high, and the proportion that gets through to be signed ultimately by the president is, is exceptionally high. And, um, uh, you, you know, this leads to a situation where um, well-informed specialists, and some of the mechanisms of consultation and taking account of other views and so on have ceased to operate. But I think they've begun to recognize that um, and that's a relatively positive uh, result, I would have thought, of the completely unexpected um, movement that began following the, the December elections. For example, they've begun to talk of the reintroduction of a vice president. Um, they've spoken of a vice president who might perhaps even normally represent parties other than the party represented by the president. So there'd be a sort of uh, built-in uh, division of powers, as it were there. Mm-hmm. They begin to discuss a number of other ways forward. Um, some of these are formulated by Putin himself in the uh, articles that he wrote in the first few months of this year, which were, as was in effect, uh, an, an election manifesto. And there, um, we haven't, I think, reported these as fully as we should have done. There he's spoken about using uh, the new technologies. Uh, he's not a great enthusiast for them, I think it's clear, but well, he's made clear. But, um, for example, to put draft legislation uh, on a website, um, he's also proposed a form of uh, crowdsourcing. Um, it's right. hardly a, a Russian word, but he's begun to use it in a way in which ordinary people, now, you know, this, we think we've got our political parties to, to do that job, mm-hmm. uh, and they do it in most countries effectively, but at least next best might be a way in which ordinary people could send in electronically their ideas and the mechanism, uh, as I understand it from some people I've talked to have played a part in this development, I think, is that uh, a computer would aggregate these. So in other words, you won't have enormous numbers, hundreds of thousands, perhaps, perhaps more millions of unrelated ideas, you would begin to get a clear sense that uh, there was a strong support, um, let's say, for example, to change back to reintroduce summertime. Um, uh-huh. The video rather arbitrarily uh, right. brought an end to it, it seemed to be unpopular, um, to make a range of other you know, cho- choices or, or, or changes that, that would be popular. And that, that I think, would, uh, would help a great deal. But there's something more than that, which um, 
I think really is uh, mentioned indirectly earlier, um, really would represent something very fundamental, and that is um, the notion introduced uh, just in March in discussions in the press. We haven't, I think, given, been given any signal from the presidency that this is uh, something that we're going to hear more of, but there has begun to be a discussion, which I think can't have happened unless the leadership was at least willing to allow it, um, of the possibility of a constitutional convention. They're going to, Medvedev is instructed to start to prepare a law on the constitutional convention. Mm -hmm. That would mean that the constitution could be revised in those chapters that are entrenched. In other words, that can't be revised by the legislature, because chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 9, that would allow the introduction of a vice presidency. Uh, you know, I know we had one before. I don't suggest that that of itself would transform the situation. But uh, if Medvedev remains influential, right. uh, if he remains committed to and is the position to further some of the changes that he began on 22nd of December, um, of a kind, some of them we've already mentioned, like liberalizing the party's law, then I think we could begin to see some form of significant change that would lead to a much more balanced constitution and one in which the president is no longer uh, quite so powerful. I mean, people really were alarmed um, by uh, 24th September last year when Putin said that he would agree to be nominated because the Constitution had already changed, making it not a four-year but a six-year term. Right. So he could serve, of course, from 2012 till 2024, at which point some have suggested, perhaps maliciously, Medvedev could then return right. uh, and continue really for a very long time. And yeah. I think it's just the feeling that uh, you know he's made his positive contribution. The country is stronger and more unified again, and living standards have risen and so on. But surely it's time to begin to open the way for other people indeed to, to come forward and for the, the beginnings to be made of a, of a handing over to, uh, to uh, a new, new group, a, a new cohort. And there are one or two people I think who could be seen as having uh, quite, a lot of, uh, quite a lot to look forward to. But um, that, that notion of, you know, until 2024, and a lot of the literature that I saw, because I was in Moscow for both of these elections, a lot of the, so the, 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 the things that people thrust into your hand were to do with uh, Putin until 2024, no thanks. It's very much right. like the, the West German slogan about nuclear energy, nein danke, we, we don't want it. Um, that, I think, in a way that they hadn't expected. You know, this is always the problem of a, a super powerful leadership. They just lose touch with what people think because they really have no reason to take any account of what people think. Mm -hmm. And this sometimes can work out badly. And the, I think the scale and the sustained nature, you know, even in minus 20 centigrade of right. the oppositional movement, really has taken them by surprise and led to changes that may go, you know, really quite far, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you expect those changes to continue even though the, the I mean, for the time being, the, the energy of the protest movement seems to have waned? Um... Very difficult to say. And of course, a lot of it has to do with the position will obviously depend a great deal on factors other than whether people are taking to the streets. Of course, they had been taking to the streets before December um, on this, this regular movement on the 31st of every month mm -hmm. uh, tied to Article 31 of the, of the Constitution. Um, so the leadership, I think, is bound to feel a number of things that, um, first of all, they can make concessions and they have, as we've been saying, begun to do so in really, I think, not, not trivial ways. Um, even the elections, um, I've got a certain amount now of survey evidence, you know, of my own and some has been published. And it's clear that people thought that the March elections, the presidential elections, were a lot cleaner than the elections in, uh, in December, the, the Duma elections. Um, you know, by sort of 30, 30-35% thought the Duma elections had been dishonest. But, you know, 20% or so think the presidential election had been dishonest. And that's a big improvement. And that's right. the result of the webcams and other things that, that they've done. Mm -hmm. So um, they can make concessions equally. They have pointed to the fact, which is the case, that, of course, the, the movement, the oppositional movement, is divided. It includes, uh, at any rate, it's heterogeneous. It includes a number of different elements. One group, as you know, are environmentally concerned, for example. Others want the election to be rerun, but you can't go on, I suppose, saying that forevermore. It's uh, clearly not going to be rerun. Um, other people are concerned with um, <clears throat> corruption. 
Um, mm-hmm. Navalny uh, made his name, really, I suppose, through uh, the campaign against corruption, and that is potentially very damaging, but the authorities clearly are aware of that. It was a very big part of uh, Medvedev's presidency, though obviously not didn't uh, have any, any really significant effect. So I think they'll hope uh, in that respect as well. But, of course, also um, the, a group of oppositionists, I mean, there went many Bolsheviks since February 1917, after all, but opposition can only hope to acquire a mass following. I think when... Um, the masses themselves are discontented, and that will be a function not only about whether people think an election was um, dishonestly run. I, you know, though nobody doubts that Putin would have won ultimately, whatever uh, system had been followed, they've got to be concerned by living standards, uh, unemployment, the sorts of things that matter most right. to most voters in most countries most of the time. And in that respect, we saw um, official figures at any rate uh, last year, something like 4.3% growth. We're expected to see something like 4.3% growth this year. Putin, when he agreed to be nominated in his speech, said that he hoped to be able to raise that to maybe 5 or 6%. Now, you know, viewed from, for example, from Europe, which is going through a very bad time, um, uh, Britain has uh, just <clears throat> possibly experienced uh, the uh, full uh, stagnation or two quarters in which growth has been, has been negative. So viewed from a European perspective, and perhaps from the US, things look a little bit better of late, but nonetheless, internationally considered, that's respectable. And I think above all, it would allow enough constituencies to continue to be serviced by government for them not to take to the streets in large numbers. And be very much like a Western politician, Putin, before, uh, pretty well every day before the election on 4th of March, attended to each distinct constituency. You know, the armed forces, you know, huge increases in, in salaries, new weapons programs, pensioners, the schools, um, you know, from, from one group to another. Um, there are figures for how much he handed out, which are a little bit alarming, I suppose, with inflationary implications. But um, for the moment, with those sorts of levels of growth, they appear to be able to service enough of the major segments of the society to mean that opposition will remain relatively modest in in scale. And I suppose that will be the crucial thing. Um, There are, of course, different views about whether economic growth will be sustainable. And I've given you, I suppose, the Kremlin's, therefore, perhaps somewhat optimistic view. But I think even bodies like the World Bank and the other people who, you know, who are based on the ground in Russia, not just looking at it from abroad, um, think that something like those levels are, are realistic. So, uh, yes, I think uh, pressure will, will, be, will continue to, to mount, but uh, obviously not, not on that scale. Um, but things have changed. I mean, it, it had some effect. You know, it, mm-hmm. they, the regime didn't just stay put and do nothing and wait till people got extremely cold and went home. No, they, they can be seen to have been affected by those movements, I think, already. Okay. Um, now we've we've discussed the uh, the continuities of of the constitutional arrangement between Yeltsin and Putin, but on the other hand, there's this uh, there is a, a divide that's usually discussed in terms of their economic uh, positions. Now, in one section of the book, you offer a balance sheet for the Yeltsin reforms. I was wondering, uh, do you think they should regard it, be regarded overall as a success or a failure? And then, in connection with that, has the return of greater of a greater economic role for the state under Putin? Been a necessary or an unfortunate development now, because that, so so these the, yeah. the, the economic issue is usually the one where Putin is separated from Yeltsin. Yeltsin is the you know the the, the instrument of the oligarchs, and then Putin put them in in their place uh, and uh, you know brought the state back in. So how how mm-hmm. how should we understand that? Well, I think I would probably share that view, but um, perhaps for slightly different reasons. Uh, one of them, of course, is that we're dealing with um, an economy that is much more integrated into the global economy than it was before, and we've seen um, changes in the philosophy of government, uh, East and West. Uh, we've seen uh, governments in Western Europe and in the United States um, adopt uh, you know, what was called at the time Reaganomics, um, in which uh, our leader, Mrs. Thatcher, here said that you know, wherever she went, including China, for example, she would find people who were busy carrying out Thatcherism in the sense of selling off state assets and that sort of thing. Um, So Russia, I think, to some extent, reflected those views. Um, It also had those views that communicated to it very strongly in ways that perhaps are still a little bit controversial to discuss, but the forms of advice that the Russian government received, um, I think, um, clearly in some cases went 
well beyond advice and reached the point of what could really be called instruction. And in some cases, that instruction uh, was published in the Russian press in the late 1990s. This is when the uh, uh, U.S. Treasury Department and others, which, of course, was supplying a great deal of money um, to assist and support the changes, nonetheless began to act all but as a veto power in relation to these changes and to vet them. Uh, there was a group of, I think it was at least 50 Western economists, uh, I knew some of them personally, um, who were set up within the um, economics ministry offering advice and very, very difficult uh, for, I think, ordinary Russians to accept that. And to some extent, I think it has to be said that the proposals that they came up with, uh, to some extent, really discredited, um, were discredited because they appeared to be carrying out uh, the views, essentially, of foreign powers. Um, of course, they weren't successful either, which I suppose was, was crucial because right. uh, these measures are, uh, again, uh, <clears throat> specialists disagree about them. But um, taking at least Russian official figures, GDP per head of population was something like 55% at the lowest point of where it had been in the last communist year. Mm-hmm. Now, the collapse, uh, the, the, the great banking and economic crisis we all experienced in 2007-8, of course, affected Russia as well, a drop of nearly 8%. And so only now have they got back to the point that they were at in 1989. Now, that's an awfully long time mm-hmm. to stand still, in effect. Um, and for, for many, many people, I think, ordinary Russians, um, governments can come and go, and they're not particularly likely to conceive of their objectives in sort of party political or ideological terms. But simply judging by by practice, you can see a government that uh, that um, led to a catastrophic fall, of course, to the default of 1998 and a whole series of when the international value of the ruble and Russia's international obligations were surrendered, a uh, really disastrous situation and savings were wiped out and so on, um, to one in which the government is in charge and there's a huge stabilization fund and they've enjoyed 7% or more a year since uh, the year 2000, to some extent, of course, by accident because of international prices for oil and other resources. So that, I think, is going to give them a strong position. But I think, again, Russia is not unique in that, because if you look at uh, the reports of bodies such as the, um, the, the World Development Report or the other reports that summarize how the uh, international economic institutions are thinking about what countries should be doing, they, it seems to me, have also changed. They've just woken up to the idea that uh, it's far too simple to say, you know, get the state out of it and then some other private enterprise will fill the gap and everyone will be, will, will be better off. Um, unfortunately, there are many, many important functions performed by the state, including the state is needed just even to guarantee that the market uh, works effectively. For example, that goods are sold that aren't dangerous to consume or that uh, monopolies aren't formed that then start to, to jack up the price and hold the consumer to, to ransom and so forth. So um, the state, uh, I think, is needed. Um, Russians came to this conclusion. I think the Primakov government of 1997 was really the first that began to shift the balance back. And I think Putin has really continued uh, from that um, with, a, you know, I think it's still open to question whether we have um, a fully market economy in Russia today. People can reasonably differ about that, um, the substantial role for the state in all sorts of ways. And uh, that, of course, has led to Russia being, to some extent, buffered from some of the economic difficulties that affected other countries in 2008 and at other times. They really remarkable how little uh, how few in the sense of riots or demonstrations there were, how little the government seemed to be directly discredited. Of course, they could say that it all come from abroad and, uh, and of course, they're uh, to a large extent right. So I think it's not only in Russia, perhaps, that, uh, that the view has changed um, among economists. And some of the more extreme, as a market fundamentalism, has lost ground in Russia, but it's also lost ground internationally, and Russia reflects that. Um, and uh, I suppose people in Europe think we sort of uh, were right to have the middle way on some of these things. The mixed economy has, uh, has outlasted both as it were extremes, but uh, maybe too soon to reach that sort of conclusion. Okay. <laughs> um, 
to, to change gears a bit, you've got a wonderful section in the book on the rise of what you call uh, feedback mechanisms, which emerged in Russia in the late Soviet period and have blossomed into the current field of opinion polling. I wonder if I could ask you, what's the opinion poll that, that most consistently surprises or, or puzzles you? Um, and do you, how do you view claims that, that Russia is an opinion poll democracy, referring to to an idea that because Vladimir Putin has consistently enjoyed high approval ratings, Russia should mm-hmm. be considered to have sort of some kind of democratic um, standing? Well, the, the opinion poll evidence, I think, is actually a bit ambiguous about, for example, uh, Putin. And I mean, it's certainly true that the rating we most often hear about is approval or disapproval. Mm-hmm. On balance, do you approve or disapprove? And that produces... Uh, as I'm sure you'll know, the Russians have this word now, rating, which is, you know, so the ratingy uh, are right. reasonably a good, good state um, uh, for, for, for these, these sorts of reasons. But there are other questions that are asked. For example, if there were an election tomorrow, how would you vote? Mm-hmm. Um, in the election, people have uh, found uh, the Levada people, for example, the longest established poll agency, found that if there had been uh, the against all option on the ballot paper, which there used to be until... 2006, I think it was removed, um, then uh, there would have been a second round, um, Mm -hmm. which would have been seen by Putin as a humiliation. Uh, Putin's made clear he doesn't like elections. He hasn't had much experience of them. Of course, his whole background is uh, is not that of winning support and uh, working with other people and so forth uh, in the style of uh, the Western countries. It's much more uh, activities in back offices and maneuvers and things mm-hmm. of that sort, and uh, or getting placed there really by his predecessor mm-hmm. um, as he was in 1999. So we find that difficult. We do know that uh, he consults the polls very regularly, and he has his own um, in-house service. And I suppose in that respect, uh, it's important as one of the ways in which I think Yeltsin said there were five main ways in which he kept in touch with ordinary people. Um, another one is. Um, of course, letters, the very traditional, even uh, Soviet, even pre-revolutionary Russian mm-hmm. mechanism, not unlike many other countries, you know, maybe France before the French Revolution, you know, petitioning and this, this sort of thing um, that goes on. Um, where the regime has moved some distance further forward is uh, in uh, associated particularly with uh, Dmitry Medvedev in this attempt to take account of the the new technologies, and uh, that appears to be, I think, what I have said, most qualified uh, success um, from the point of view of the Kremlin. One uh, cost of that is that they have really had to leave the Internet relatively untouched, um, relatively unregulated. That has meant that the uh, opposition um, could, for example, coordinate their activities through the, the Internet. The current figures, I've just had uh, very recent survey evidence that it's something like 60% of the adult population, that's for the whole country, so of course much higher in the big cities, um, regularly have access to the internet and something like 40%, again much higher in the big cities, regularly use the, the new social networks, the Twitters and Facebooks and so on. So when, when Levada asked the people at the demonstration on 24th of December how they knew there was going to be a demonstration, well, obviously, they didn't say uh, that it was announced in Radio Moscow or something like that. They had heard about it on these uh, effectively uh, opposition networks. Um, now, they've tried you know, to even pay people to use the networks in a, a pro-Kremlin sense uh, and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, it hasn't really worked. And, and so, you know, I think they're, they're, they're open to in, in that way. And there's a significant sphere. It's sometimes called... Um, elite internet, uh, continuing not just one-off messages, but Gazeta Rue and a variety variety of other continuing, in effect, oppositional periodicals that have taken a lot of the um, (coughs) ability, a lot of the control of the information sphere that the Kremlin used to have, really out of their hands. I was very struck by one of the discussions following the December elections in which there was a studio discussion uh, chaired by Mr. Solovyov and very many different people were there and they were speaking relatively, frankly, I think as the election had just finished and the exit poll has, had been announced. But in that, one young man said, uh, well, you know, we're all going on about television and 
television was thought to have been relatively more open in December than it had been before, with a wide range of opinion on it. Uh, Uganda, the Communist leader, even thanked the, uh, the, the host for the way in which they had uh, sort of upped their, their game. But, but nonetheless, one of them said, well, look, these days the Internet is more important than television. And it struck me as really possibly true now that particularly for a segment, not only younger people, but probably particularly them, that, uh, and not just in Russia, of course, either, but forms of communication have really slipped out of the old forms, uh, the old ways in which they could be regulated. And um, the Kremlin, for whatever reason, hasn't tried yet, at least, to restore some control. Now, I think in some respects, they're beginning to do that. The radio station Echo Mafui, um, Echo of Moscow, which is seen as the, you know, a voice for a variety of opinions, at least. And people like Hillary Clinton, I think, have been interviewed there right. without any question of censorship and so forth. So it does provide for a wide range of opinion. Uh, nonetheless, I read that their editorial uh, board is undergoing changes which have most generally been interpreted as, as being political. So it might be that the elections having taken place and the spotlight to some extent off them now that the Kremlin is beginning to think, well, look, you know, we, perhaps we have let these Internet guys give them too much freedom. Look at what they're doing in China. You know, there are ways of dealing with this problem, so to speak. So we may see some, uh, some, some measure of, of measures of that kind. Uh, I think... When it said all of that, I think one has to say that um, the current regime, for example, Putin, was, nobody doubts, um, the most uh, widely supported candidate and by, of course, a very large margin. Mm -hmm. And every opinion policy, and including hostile polls, you know, right. they may add one or two percent to Putin or one of the other candidates, but certainly he's you know, three times as much support as any other candidate. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, so this is, of course, what the head of the Central Electoral Commission said. He said, well, look, what are you worried about? Right. What falsification could there be mm -hmm. when the officials are we're so close to all of these, including independent uh, forecasts of, of the results? And I, he's got a point, I think. Right, right. Um, okay. And so so that kind of, that, that, that description kind of paints Russia as as a sort of strange place where where the media is there there's this there's this um, large censorship of of any coverage of uh, of you know critical critical coverage of, of Putin yet there is also a there's a, there's there's also a popular sort of seems seems to be a popular perception that 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 Putin is uh, a positive figure in Russian politics mm -hmm. now you describe Russian foreign policy as generated by a three-way split of, of these com of competing narratives that you break down into liberal westernizers, pragmatic nationalists, and fundamentalist nationalists. So, mm -hmm. so, so th I find it interesting because there we're kind of getting a sense that there are these major interest groups or segments of, of Russian political per persuasions. Um, yep. Now, how, how should people in the West understand this, people that, that – Usually assume that that Russia Russians are either uni universally behind Putin or that none of them are that he's a dictator and mm -hmm. that that you know he's manipulating the media and polls and everything. Um, now now if there are these three existing groups of of, of Russian political belief, uh, specifically on foreign policy, how sh how should someone in the West understand it when we're we're used to something more along the lines of of just a dichotomy between hawks and doves? Yes, um, indeed. Now. I think it's probably fair to say that the division of opinion that, that I've used, which is one that uh, other Western scholars began to develop in the, in the 1990s, it fitted rather well then. There have, of course, been changes in the, uh, in the, the size and the, in the degree of support for these respective positions. And it's probably fair to say that uh, coinciding with, really a part of the, the Putin leadership, that the, the centrist position, pragmatic nationalist, we, we call it, has become dominant. Uh, you can see that, of course, as well, if you look at the outcome of, of elections, parliamentary or presidential, um, it's become dominant for a variety of reasons. I suppose parties have been more successful and parties enjoyed better circumstances. But in particular, the, the liberal westernizer view um, has lost a lot of support, has lost its parliamentary representation. Um, it hasn't just happened by accident. I think the regime has, I suppose I'm afraid, successfully been able to point to paint some of the most prominent spokespersons as 
really in the pocket of the West, not just wanting a closer relationship with us, but really right. um, serving the interests of a foreign power, if one has to put it like that. And right. that is a part of the Putin leadership style. I think we, we have to accept that um, even uh, during, uh, even at the end of last year, for example, when these uh, demonstrations began to occur, um, he immediately, his first thought was clearly that uh, Hillary Clinton or the U.S. government or any hostile outside powers, and one in particular, must have been behind it, that um, a few people had uh, been sort of uh, uh, confused and, you know, understandably and uh, just they sort of hadn't uh, uh, thought straight uh, quickly enough, but that a very large number were, frankly, aiming to carry out something like a coloured revolution um, in Russia. And they wanted, as others had done, to use an election as a means of achieving that. And, um, you know, these bizarre demonstrations then happened subsequently in which people went to Western embassies, including the British embassy, who aren't capable of anything very much so far as I've been able to see myself, and accused them of having, as it were, failed to bring down the regime. You know, they added they would think of attempting to do so, let alone have any real opportunity, any real means of doing so. It's just bizarre. But presumably, if you spent all your life in the intelligence services, that is the sort of way you think. So there is this view, I think, which is, uh, you know, they've made life very difficult um, in all sorts of ways. But I think the liberal westernized position, there remains uh, throughout, I think, um, a division which isn't exactly the one that I think does make sense in foreign policy terms, and that's the um, liberal versus Siliviki division that we haven't mentioned yet. And the liberals taken, to, they would typically be uh, certainly uh, pro-Western in the sense that they believe Russia should join, as of course it's now done, the World Trade Organization, but it should be, play a full part in the international uh, economy. Um, uh, people like uh, Kudrin, for example, the now dismissed uh, finance minister, would be in that position where Kudrin uh, to be uh, in May or uh, perhaps at some future point in a year or two uh, brought in as Russian prime minister, um, then I think that would be a very powerful signal that that, that view, the view that uh, the state should, uh, should tax and spend rather less, that um, Russia should be more fully integrated into, into the international economy, that foreign investment was desirable, including in areas of the economy that the Putin people have sought to protect, um, regarding them as strategic and connected with national interests and so on, that would be important. Uh, but there is, of course, the other view. Some of the uh, appointments, I think, uh, point in really the other direction, suggest that people who share Putin's background, which I know can be exaggerated, and um, uh, I think um, you know, I've had occasion to meet a number of these people uh, in the course of an interview project with, with Russian elites, and I found them very balanced and sensible and pretty well the least hysterical people I've had occasion to, to talk to, the most realistic and the least likely to think that the, the outside world is out to get them, and very concerned about alcoholism and uh-huh. rural decline and, and things of that sort. But um, uh, that's not, I think, true of all of them, uh, and uh, some of the people we've seen... Um, Mr. Narishkin, who's the new Speaker of the Duma, is usually associated with, uh, because he served abroad in an embassy and things of that sort, it's likely, uh, at least Westerners think, that he uh, you know, had a career connection, at least with the, with the KGB and a number of other figures of that sort. And I think if um, we, we'll learn a lot, I dare say, from the composition of the new government, it was being discussed just a few days after the presidential election and then the the two leaders went off to uh, to Sochi to to try out the uh, sites they're using for for the Winter Olympics where they were joined by Mr. Berlusconi that they've all got on very well with. Um, So I think we'll learn something from the composition of the new government and we will begin to be able to do some sort of count. But I think up to this point, I I would feel myself that it's striking how how little um, that Medvedev has been able to advance his people, people who might be thought to be uh, liberal um, uh, in, in this sort of context, and how firm a grip Putin has retained over some of the key appointments, over the, uh, the envoys in the federal districts, as well as over the key positions within the, within the government itself. And I would have thought that the 
still is a key that the fourth ministry people, the you know military security, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, those interests, which something like 20 ministries are involved in that complex, it's really very substantial part of the economy as well as of the political elite. Um, that's a really significant force, and I think it it hasn't become notably less um, in the in, in the recent past. Now, what about on, on domestic issues, specifically economic issues? For instance, has the exit of, of uh, Kudrin, does that seriously weaken the liberals in the coming administration, or will pressures of that, 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 are, that are inevitable with pension reform, is that going to necessitate uh, another turn to the uh, political, uh, well, you know, to... to, to to political market liberalism if, if the pension system is going to sort of break the budget of the state. Yep, um, that depends on so many things which are, you know, unknowable, known right. unknowns to quote a well-known American yes. politician, yes. and they depend to a large extent on external circumstances, including world energy prices. Accordingly, right. if, the, if the world price of oil drops below, I think is it uh, 100 US dollars per barrel at the moment, I think that's the the level on which the budget, for example, has been, uh, uh, which, which is assumed in the budget. Right. And they recently begun to adopt budgets for three-year periods. But if you depend critically uh, on that, then, um, then of course, you, you'll have to tear it up halfway through if the, uh, the price significantly changes. And, um, you know, it's not an easy business. Um, it's also suggested, I think, that the uh, promises, the, the handouts that uh, Putin engaged in before the election, um, as many uh, leaders before him and after him and in other countries have done, that those the bills will start to come in and that that will force inflation higher and uh, I suppose eight nine percent something like that. Um, where uh, so it will it will tend to be pushed uh, higher. Um, there are some very deep questions I think really about the economy that um, liberals haven't particularly had an answer to and. Really, whoever is in charge will find extraordinarily difficult. And I suppose the the biggest of those is just precisely this dependence, which which has remained, which is a Soviet thing. But in fact, it's even more pronounced now. The the the, the value of our Russian exports accounted for by uh, by oil and gas, by by raw materials generally, is uh, of the order of two thirds, and it was of the order of a half at the highest point in the late Soviet period. So, in spite of all that's happened, they've ended up, you know, ironically more dependent upon uh, international energy prices, which can be, of course, influenced, maybe even manipulated in a manner that's prejudicial to their interests. And that's why they're so keen, of course, to acquire pipelines and distribution networks, not right. simply to pump the stuff out of the ground and then just hope they get a, a good price. So right. you or I, I think, would, would take exactly the same view. So uh, that's extraordinarily difficult. Um, in the longer run, um, I did see some figures, and they're, they're quoted in the book, things like um, wood. You know, we, we don't think that, that wood matter, timber, but uh, in terms of timber, they're exceptionally well provided. Of course, as you can imagine, looking at what Russian scenery looks like uh, in terms of water, in terms of land, though, of course, so much of it is frozen, um, mm -hmm. in terms of coal, of course, there's a whole of Mendeleev's table of, uh, uh, you know, uranium, anything you could think of, um, given such a large territory. So they're exceptionally well placed. Supplies of coal, I have read, are enough to last the next 500 years. I have a feeling that is of global consumption, not just a Russian consumption. Right. It may cost more and more to extract, and it can be uh, throw off, you know, harmful carbon dioxide and this sort of thing when it's burning. But, mm -hmm. but there's no question that the, the mineral is there. Right. Um, but that has led to um, the very familiar problem, which, of course, I do give some attention to, of uh, the, the, the resource curse, as right. it's called, um, the idea that if you come to depend so much upon the extraction of a resource, there's less incentive to, to innovate, to, to add value. Um, if so much uh, money is attached to the permission to extract and, uh, and send overseas, then um, almost inevitably uh, there are huge uh, tendencies towards corruption because the officials who hand out that permission are in effect handing out great wealth or denying great wealth. Right. And it's not surprising that, um, that there are very, very few countries. Um, I think I would almost risk saying none, and that's something academics really don't do is mm -hmm. to make an absolute statement, but I can't think of a country where 
um, national economy where GDP is so overwhelmingly dependent on natural resources, and there isn't, as judged by Transparency International or other such bodies, a very serious problem of corruption in the public sector and, and not only in the public sector. Um, and these concerns, uh, they just recently, um, Mr. Shivalov, a key minister, for example, has just right. in the last week been associated with some of these concerns, and right. there remains uh, there remain all sorts of rumours surrounding Putin himself. Mm-hmm. Um, the lady who just died, Marina Salie, had collected a dossier right. from Putin's time in the St. Petersburg administration mm-hmm. in the beginning of the 1990s, which she just, I think, a week ago put on the internet. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. many Russians at least, you know, nothing's been proven in court and so on. And the Putin people have said this is. Uh, not uh, to be taken seriously, but nonetheless, many Russians, I think, will be bound to be impressed uh, by a volume of material that helps to explain why, how somebody could become, from doing a modest job uh, working on a Soviet salary, could suddenly become rich by international standards. Mm-hmm. You could join the super rich, and uh, that isn't helpful. And if we look around, you know, look, how did uh, national school end in China? You know, many, many countries. What undermined Weimar Germany? It's uh, when uh, corruption gets out of hand and inflation gets out of hand, and then people look perhaps for a far-right answer or something like that, but they, they tend not to continue to support the government that rightly or wrongly is blamed for those developments. Right. Now, if, 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 if the resource curse or if resource dependence is, is sort of on, on one side, it's producing this, this massive corruption that presumably uh, really worries liberal Westerners who are concerned with foreign investment. Why is it not also uh, worrying Sylvie Vicky, who presumably should be concerned with the, the, the idea that there's never been an energy superpower in history? Why is that not a, an alarming fact for them? I think you're, you're right that, uh, that it does concern them. And uh, I think, as I've said, some of the people that I had occasion to see, they were typically, um, in the course of elite interviews, they were typically people working for example, for the personnel department of a big company or in public relations, things of that sort, um, but personnel particularly, and of course that was always a great skill of the uh, KGB in the past. Um, people of that sort, I really was struck throughout by the extent to which uh, they were concerned about, uh, I mentioned I think alcoholism, but also the, the demographic threat, the right. The way in which the population was declining, which it has just in the last year or so ceased apparently to to do. Um, but people, people of the sort, um, I think it's also fair to say that within their complex, um, at least uh, I'm not personally aware of um, substantial controversy, at least that's become public knowledge within the FSB empire. And if you look at, you know, it's very repugnant to probably to many of us and unexpected, but if you look at the for example, public trust in institutions, and you ask public trust in the security services, uh, you know, FSB and security services, it's relatively high. Um, and it's relatively high, not because people are unaware of the dreadful things that happened in the past, but because the scene is recruiting typically, you know, the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, as I think the phrase was used about the, the CIA, wasn't it, um, in, in, in the same sort of way that they that they're very demanding, that uh, they provide, of course, an excellent uh, education, that they, they have to, with their language training is, uh, for example, outstanding, um, and that they're relatively free of, uh, of corruption. And, um, uh, you know, in, in these circumstances, I think it's, you know, it's understandable that, that, that they have some support. Um, so some some substantial uh, popular support. So I, I would have thought that um, well, they, you know, they're relatively free of this concerns. They're bound to be concerned about them, and of course, they do have direct responsibilities for economic crime and for any large-scale uh, crime. And they do have a, a massive still uh, reporting uh, aspect in which they are concerned about demonstrations, uh, movement, the popular mood. Um, right. If people want to complain about local officials who are lining their own pockets, it may well be that, that they get to hear about it first. And so they have a, I think, a terribly important role for a state which has been you know, a long way back towards a, a one-party state. If you don't have that sort of independent access to what people are really doing and thinking and saying, then you are in really big trouble. And no regime wants to be in really big trouble. And they rely on 
to an extent, it's very difficult for an outsider to judge, but presumably to a very large extent, since they've been directly represented in the leadership uh, in the Soviet period, as well, of course, as now through, through Putin. It's difficult to think that they won't play a very important part in, um, in informing and in alerting the regime to, to problems that are coming up. Okay. All right. Well, Professor White, we're grateful for your time today, and I know we need to let you go, but perhaps before we do that, you could tell our listeners what you're working on at the moment. Yes, well, I'd be glad to. Um, I'm doing study. In fact, it's, it's overdue, but I do hope to finish it later this year on, uh, in fact, back in foreign policy on the Russian and also the Ukrainian-Belarusian relationship with Europe, meaning the EU, partly European Union, but also meeting, meaning Europe in, in a wider sense. And it's, it's a long-standing issue for Russians themselves, you know, are they really a part of this uh, wider Europe or are they something different? And uh, the people we've been talking about differ very much about that. But like it or not, we're side by side and we have to find some way of doing our business and ideally peacefully and perhaps even uh, constructively um, rather than by uh, military means. Okay. And, and do you have any idea when, when uh, readers might expect to see results of that research? Well, people, I hope, would be able to get it probably about this time next year, maybe 18 months at the most. Okay, fantastic. All right, well, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Stephen White about his book, Understanding Russian Politics. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Kevin Rothrock, your host for New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com and be sure to tune in again for future interviews by me and my co-host, Sean Guillory. Many thanks for listening. Until next time. Он в усы усмешку прячь, темнота ему, как щит, все коты.